Well, happy Mother's Day. I know that it can be hard uh, for some. For some, it can be overwhelming. Uh, for others, it brings up some bad memories. Uh, for others, it's finally a day where you get to be the center of attention. Some women have kids, others have been unable to have them, others have them that are grown and gone and out of the house. But no matter what your feelings are uh, on kids, or whether you've got them or not, most every person has kids in their life that they care about. Whether you're uh, a grandparent, a parent, uh, an aunt, an uncle, uh, we all have kids in our lives that we desire to see have a relationship with God. We want the best for them. It could be a God child. It could be your best friend's kid. We all have this desire to have, to see children in our lives, have a relationship with Jesus. Uh, some of what I'm going to share today is, comes from one of my favorite parenting books called Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. Um, fantastic book that I, I enjoy that's been beneficial for Audrey and I, I, Audrey and I's parenting journey. Uh, but a while back, I was reading this blog post from a, a gal named Autumn Ward, and, and it reminded me of my life as a parent uh, early on. Uh, it reminded me of just the, the desire to be perfect in all these things. She, she writes in her article, she says, I was the mom with the schedule, the feeding schedule, the sleeping schedule, the playtime schedule, the reading schedule. I had a schedule on the fridge in case I forgot the original schedule. I was the schedule queen, she writes. Why scheduling? She said, simply because I wanted what was best for my kids. I wanted to make sure they got what they needed, and somehow I got it in my head that if I did everything perfectly, everything would be perfect, Right? Uh, she was like, I wanted the perfect play group. I wanted the perfect meal, the perfect bath time, the perfect toys, the perfect preschool. I wanted to give my kids the perfect life. As a parent, have you ever found yourself attempting to pull those same things off, giving your kids, maybe your grandkids even, the perfect life? And yet as parents, we're always doing what we believe to be best for our kids but have you ever really asked yourself the title of the message today, what is best? What is best? Can I tell you what's best for your kids, what's best for your grandkids, what's best for your nieces, nephews, godchildren, best friends, kids, kid down the street that you've got a close connection with? Whatever it is, the best thing for them is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The best thing for the kids in our lives that we care so deeply about is a faith that is their own. And so if you've got access to a Bible today, whether it be on a smartphone, your physical Bible, uh, if you don't have those, that are, it's going to be on the screen for you. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 today. And, and 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a unique passage talking about a, a woman named Hannah who is going through a tremendous challenge in her life. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 5, it says this, it says, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. This was her husband. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, come on, husbands, have you ever given something like that advice? Don't I mean more to you than fill-in-the-blank terrible advice? 
Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, and then I will give him to the Lord, and for all the days of his life, no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah doesn't have any kids. She is unable to have kids. She's barren, and so she's got this, this challenge that she's faced with. And yet, here she is. She wants the best for her kids. These kids that, that she doesn't even have yet. We all want what's best for our kids, right? And yet, there are times in life where we allow things to get in the way. Because the thing is, too many of us, we buy into the myth. We buy into this myth that, that we need to become the right kind of parent. We need to become the right kind of leader, the right kind of person, before God can ever begin to use us. In reality, God is longing to, to tell his story through our imperfections and our brokenness. You see, churches, they're made up of broken people. Families are made up of broken people, and yet both of them exist. They both exist to show a broken world God's message of restoration and redemption. Hannah was broken. She's barren unable to, to reproduce. How in the world was God going to use Hannah in this season of her life? And yet, it, the challenge for her is, is you got to understand some of the context as well, is, is because she was unable to have kids, she was unable to give her husband one of the things that he desired the most, an heir. Uh, in Hebrew culture back then, having a son to carry on the family legacy was incredibly important, and she was unable to do this. And yet, even though she was unable to do this, even though she was in this giant trial year after year, she refused to give up. She didn't give up even though she was being ridiculed by her inability to reproduce. See, she didn't give up. She stood up. You look at verse 9. It says, once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. A very unique verse. I don't know why they would give us this detail, that the writers would give us this detail. But I think that it's an encouragement to us that in the seasons, the challenges we face, Hannah, here she is in the middle of this storm. She physically gets up. She stands up. She, she takes a step, not a huge step, but she takes a step forward in the direction of God. She moves towards Jesus. And how often in life, when we're facing trials, when we're facing challenges, do we stay put or do we slide backwards when the hard times come? You might be here this morning and maybe you identify with Hannah. Maybe you identify with her because of your inability to have kids. Maybe you identify with Hannah because you're going through something and life is hard right now. You're going in a direction that you don't want to. Your finances are troubling. Your kids continue to make poor decisions. Your job is a joke. Your marriage is on the rocks. Your health isn't what you expected it to be. I don't know what it is for you, but maybe you feel like Hannah this morning. Can I tell you that there is hope for you today, that God is powerful and has the ability to take whatever your pain is and turn it into joy and turn it into happiness. Church, don't let the struggle that you're dealing with cause you to stay where you are, to cause you to shy away from the things that God has for you 
in life. Hannah stands up and she goes to prayer. And this is what she prays in verse 11. She says, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son and then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah prays this incredibly bold prayer. I grew up with a mom who prayed bold prayers. Many of you may know this. If you don't know this, I lost my dad when I was seven years old. So I grew up without a father figure in my life. And yet my mom knew that it was important to pray bold prayers. She prayed these incredibly bold prayers for encouragement, for people to surround our family, for support. She prayed scriptures over my brother and I, scriptures like Psalm 68, 5, that says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. You see, when my mom began to pray these bold prayers, she, she, she was looking beyond the now. She was looking beyond the, the current situation, the current place where we are. She knew that we, we didn't have a father, that we would need men in our lives that would be father figures for us. And so she prayed boldly that God would provide these men. And can I tell you that some of our greatest prayers come out of our deepest pain. Some of our greatest prayers come out of the deepest challenges, the deepest hurt that we have in life. And so, so my mom saw what she wanted my brother and I to, to get to. She saw where we were supposed to be at, where she desired us to be at, and she worked to make it happen. Hannah doesn't even have kids, and she even sees the bigger picture as well. She saw the end. Hannah knew that if she was going to have a child, it was only going to be because of the grace of God. And she wanted to make sure that if she did, in fact, have a child, that he knew who God was. You see, if you want your child to have a faith of their own, you have to imagine the end. If you want your child to have the best thing, you have to imagine the end. I was taking a, a motorcycle class years ago working to get my motorcycle endorsement. You take the class, you do all the coursework, and then you actually have to go out and, and practice the skills, put things into practice to make sure the instructor is trying to make sure you know, that you can uh, be a safe, responsible driver of a motorcycle out on the road. And, and one of the tests that I had to do when I was testing for my motorcycle endorsement was they would place these traffic cones space them out uh, a, a distance, and, and you had to take your motorcycle and weave in and out of these cones. And if you missed the cone, you failed the test. And so here I am. I had grown up around motorcycles, but hadn't like driven them in a very space like this. And so I did my best. So I got on my bike, and I started weaving in and out of the cones and watching to make sure where I got. And the next thing you know is I'm paying attention to the cones below me. I missed the first cone, and then I turn up trying to get it to the next cone, and I missed the next cone. And all of a sudden, it was just a train wreck. I missed cone after cone after cone. I was focusing on what was right there. And sometimes in life, we have these big dreams or aspirations for our kids. We hope that our kids are going to be something great when they get to be older. And then something happens, and we get off track. And then it continues, and we get further and further and further off track. And the reason, I think the reason we get off track is because we don't have an end goal in mind. You see, I think that every parent has a desire to be a better parent. I think every parent wants to be a better parent. But even wanting to be a better parent, if you don't have an end goal in mind, it's going to be difficult to do that. As parents, 
you need to think about where you want your kids to end up. Grandparents, you can think this way as well. And so I'm driving through this, this class of these cones, and I'm missing these cones left and right. And so I come back, and the instructor's like, yeah, that didn't work, did it? And he goes, he goes here, let me, can I give you some instruction? So obviously I received it, and he said, focus on the very end. And I said, I don't, that doesn't make sense. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if I'm focusing up and not looking down to see where I'm going, I'm going to miss cones anyways. He goes, just trust me and try it. So here I am on my motorcycle looking at the very end of where I want to get to through all of these cones. And wouldn't you know it that I start weaving in and out of these cones with my head up. I'm looking out of my peripherals, seeing the cones below me, but I'm focused on the end. And I weave in and out and in and out of these cones. And sure enough, I made it to the very end because I was focusing on the end. How do you uh, imagine the end for your kids? The first step is you have to make God your top priority. In order, in order for you to imagine the end with your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, nephews, godchildren, best friends, kid, in order for you to imagine the end, God has to be your personal top priority. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses here, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. He's giving a, a farewell address, so to speak, to the nation as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, the land that was flowing with milk and honey, all of these beautiful things. And, and here he is, he, he gives them a vision for life in one single phrase. He's saying, everything that I've said, everything I'm going to say, it hinges on one essential truth that trumps everything. Our God is God. He says, it's all about him. And if we don't start with God, we may end up in the wrong place. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, best friends, whoever you are, you need to start with God. And here's why. Because it doesn't matter what our kids know if they don't know what really matters. It doesn't matter what our kids know if they don't know what really matters. It would be heartbreaking for children who enjoyed the benefits of, of a better life, living in a land flowing with milk and honey, all the, the prosperities to become experientially rich but lacking a relationship with Jesus, never really knowing him. Don't lose your focus, that Jesus needs to be the priority. Reggie Joyner is the founder of a group called the Rethink Group. That is, their goal is to partner with churches, to, to take churches and, and parents and help combine them. And, and he says this, he says that when you imagine the end, it enables you to distinguish more clearly between what matters and what matters most. You see, when you imagine the end, you realize that no one has more potential to influence your child than you. When you have relationship, you have potential to influence. When you realize this, you understand that parents, I'm going to speak to you for a moment. You have to take the reins of the spiritual leadership in your child's life. Parents, it, it is, you have to assume the primary responsibility 
to keep your kids, to help your kids take the next step in their pursuit of a relationship with God. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to have a degree in theology. It doesn't mean that you've got to be on staff at a church. It simply means that you are leveraging your relationships to help keep your children moving in the right direction in their relationship with God. You see, your influence has more to do with your relationship with your children than it does your skills as a parent. Your influence is important. Relationships, they take time and they take investment. And when you leverage that as a parent, you'll understand that the amount of influence you have is about 3,000 hours a year. You have about 3,000 hours a year to invest into your child. And so I'm going to put an image on the screen for you to kind of represent that for you. It's a picture of a, a bunch of dots. The picture on the right is that 3,000 hours. It's 3,000 orange dots. The image on the left is the church. The church gets roughly 40 hours a year when you consider vacations and sickness to invest in the children. So you've got to realize something that I have come to believe with my heart is that what happens at home is more important than what happens at church. Let me say that again so you understand that what happens at home is more important than what happens at church. As parents, we cannot continue to expect the church to be the ones who are raising our children spiritually. The reality is, is that teachers, pastors, coaches, their influence is only temporary. A parent's influence is permanent. You have a natural God-given advantage to lead your children, to love your children, but you're not the only influence that your children need. In order to raise your children to have a growing relationship with Jesus, you have to, yes, imagine the end, but you also have to widen the circle. You have to widen the circle of influence around your kids. And when you widen the circle, the goal is simply to have other trusted adults in the lives of your children before they need them, so that they'll be there when they need them. So the question for you is how many trusted adults are actively investing in the lives of your kids? Growing up, uh, Audrey had a, a woman named Jenny. Jenny was a family friend who would sit at the bed, the foot of Audrey's bed, as Audrey was a middle schooler and into high school. Uh, being challenged with things that middle schoolers and high schoolers are challenged with. And she would vent and have these conversations with Jenny. She didn't want to talk to her mom about it because it's her mom, right? But she would have no problems talking with Jenny about it. Myself, I had people that, that were around me, Bob, Bobby, my aunt. There were people that I would go and talk to because I didn't want to talk to my mom at the time. Widening the circle, it involves pursuing strategic relationships so other adult voices will be speaking into your son or daughter's life saying the same kinds of things that you would as a parent. Because the reality is there comes a point in time as kids get older that they don't want to listen to you. For a variety of reasons. But as they get older, they don't want to talk to you about stuff. And so you need to have people in your children's life that will say the same kinds of things that you would as a parent, but they'll be willing to listen to the other individual. It is so important for us as parents, as grandparents, to begin to widen the circle. Grandparents, you might be part of that wider circle. Aunts, uncles, you might be part of that wider circle. After my dad passed, 
there were men that, that took it upon themselves to come and, and surround our family. One of those men is named Bob. Bob jumped into our family. He was a family friend, actually, that had developed over time. And, and Bob kind of just became invested in my life. He's still, to this day, he and his wife, Cherie, are still invested in my life to this day, nearly 30 years later. They're there every week when I call them on the phone to just check in, see how things are going. We weekly have conversations. And one of the best things, they've been one of the biggest blessings in my life because not only are they people that I could go and talk to when I was a teenager, but, but they were people who were praying for me. They were praying for my brother. They were praying for my wife before I was ever even considering being married. They're now people who are praying for myself, for my wife, for my kids, for our church. They were part of the wider circle that my mom cast growing up. If you've spent any time around a junior hire, you know that their emotions can change faster than a pit crew on a NASCAR team. They go from one direction to the other direction with a snap of a finger. There was a point in time when I had zero desire whatsoever to talk to my mom about things that I was going through, the emotions I was processing, the challenge I was having because it was my mom. And so what I would do is I would go talk to other people, these people that had been strategically placed in my life that would say the same things that my mom would do, the, the, the same advice that I would have gotten from my mom, but I didn't want to hear it from her, but I would be willing to listen to other people. And so Bob and Shree happened to be one of those people. They lived around the corner for a long time. And so I would ride my bike over to their house. I would march over to their house. Later when I started driving, I would drive over to their house because they understood, and my mom was never going to get it. <laughs> or so I thought. But they would say the same things that my mom would have said. And see, the truth is that children have a better chance of understanding and interpreting life-changing truth when multiple influences, multiple influences in their lives are saying the same thing. Leverage that. Leverage that in your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, your friend. The fact is our kids are going to run to talk to other people. It's not a question of, of if they're going to talk to other people. It's a question of when they go to talk to other people. And when you ask them, who are you going to talk to, would your kids have a name? And if you don't have a name, I'm going to encourage you, a great place to start is our body here at the church. This is a great group of people. Connect with your friends here. Ask if they'll be invested in your child's life. There is something special about having a community of believers surrounding you. A faith community is so vitally important. You see, we were created to be in relationship. Uh, but, but beyond that, we weren't just individually created to be in relationship. What's true of individuals, it's also true of families. Families were wired to be in relationship. We were, we were wired to be in community. And Mark Keeley, he's part of Lifeway Research. He says this, he says that 28% of teens who had at least one adult from church make a significant investment in their lives were more likely to keep attending church. And more of those who stayed in church by a margin of 46% to 28% said that five or more adults at church invested time with them personally and spiritually. How many other trusted adults are investing into your kids spiritually there's that whole line that you've probably heard before that it takes a village to raise a child uh, i think it operates in this sense that it takes a church 
to raise a child. And for me, that's one of the many reasons why I love our kids' volunteers and why I love our youth volunteers. I'm so grateful for them because they're part of, of creating a safe place for our kids to talk and, and have conversations. They're part of a community. The nation of Israel was uh, part of a community as well. And, and Moses, he had a conversation with the community, with the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it records pieces of this. Moses knew that things were about to change as they were getting ready to enter into the promised land. And in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6, he says, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Israelites, they're on the precipice. They're on the, the cusp of, of getting ready to, to enter into the promised land. And Moses knew that the people of Israel could have easily forgotten all of the things that God had done for them. And so he, he, he gives the people an easy-to-follow time for them to continue to invest in their faith. Right, because their, their times were changing for them. And, and time is a, a challenging thing, right? Time is, is one of the most precious commodities we have. It's the only resource that everybody gets the exact same amount of. It just matters how we steward the time that we have. We're never going to have more of it than we already and that, that we currently have. And so it's not an issue of how do we get more time. It's an issue of how do we become more intentional with the time that we have. If you want your child, your grandchild, your niece, nephew to have a faith of their own, you have to imagine the end, you have to widen the circle, and you have to create a rhythm. You have to create a rhythm. Your house, it has a rhythm. You may not have intended it to have a rhythm, but your house actually has one. The reality is we all end up with a rhythm, whether you realize it or not. Because rhythm, it's simply how we arrange our time. If you were to analyze the rhythm of your house, you would soon discover that much of life consists in, in repeated patterns. It's why we typically go to the same gas stations to fill up. It's why we typically will take the same routes to work. It's why we sleep on the same side of the bed without changing sides of the bed. It's why we sit in the same area at church oftentimes. There's a reason why babies are put on a schedule, a rhythmic schedule when they're born. Rhythms are, are part of our everyday life. We keep calendars because of rhythms. TV shows operate in TV time slots because of the rhythms of life. And my question is, how, how normal is God in your rhythm? How normal is God in your time regularly? Because in this section of Deuteronomy, Moses knows that the people of Israel, as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land, he knows that they're about to encounter a gigantic cultural shift. Things are about to change in a way that they have never before for this, this nation. They had been wandering through the, the desert for 40-some years, and as they wandered through the desert, God had continuously provided for them. He had provided manna. He provided quail. He provided regularly, daily. They had their provisions taken care of, and as they get ready to move into the promised land, that provision was about to stop in that specific way. And, and Moses knew that God was, was so present in everybody's everyday experience that, that he, he wanted to make sure they understood that their current reality wasn't their future reality. 
And so he's saying, guys, if you're going to be impressing these truths on your kids, if you're going to be impressing these, you've got to be more deliberate about creating a rhythm at home. He says, in the future, there's going to be things that are going to try and distract you. There's going to be things that are vying for your time. You're going to get prosperous. Things are going to go well for you. You're going to get comfortable. Life's going to get busy, and what's going to happen is you're going to begin to drift away from the importance of having an everyday faith. We had been so accustomed to experiencing God every day, and things are about to change. Moses recognized the dangers of a compartmentalized faith. He suspected that there would be a tendency to segment God into an isolated category of life instead of viewing him as the integrating force that influences all of life. He was concerned that the society, the church, would begin to one day view God as a smaller part of culture, as a smaller part of their life. So he shares this with them, and I, I look at it, and I think there's four specific times in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that, that Moses pulls out that says, be intentional with these times. He says, be intentional when you're eating together. Be intentional when you're walking or when you're traveling together, when you're tucking your kids into bed, when you're getting up in the morning. Families, we've got to take advantage of these times, these, these rhythms that are built into our life, these routines, these patterns, and begin to initiate interaction and have it become natural. Because here's the thing, parents who engage in small ways can make a big difference in the lives of their kids or teenagers. Parents who engage in small ways can make a big difference. It doesn't have to be these grandiose things that you're sending them to Bible camp. Well, that's great. It's about being intentional in the small times. My mom knew that leaning into Christ was important for us after the passing of my dad. And so we were at church on a regular basis. She brought us along all the time. She did devotions with us on the regular basis. If the, the church was having an event, we would be at the event. We were, we were invested. She got involved in community groups, in, in groups of people who were saying those things types of things. We prayed daily on the way to school. We prayed daily before bed. We prayed at meal times. My mom went so far as to create a scripture-based treasure hunt on Christmas Day. And can I tell you, it's one of my favorite things growing up. When Audrey and I got married, my mom thought I was too old to, to continue the treasure hunt. And so we got to Christmas to celebrate Christmas with her. And we were, my brother and I were waiting for the treasure hunt. She's like, oh, you guys are... You're too old now. Can I tell you it was not one of my most blessed moments. I reacted in a way that was very inappropriate for a grown man. But it became special. It was intentional. So much so that my brother and I now have carried on the tradition of doing this with our kids we do it at home still i'm 34 years old and we still do a scripture treasure hunt on christmas day it is one of the things that i look forward to because it was an intentional thing the point is this it became mission critical for my mom to make god part of our everyday life to create a rhythm that centralized around christ she did her best to make things perfect, but man, we know that nothing is perfect except Christ. No person, no day, no circumstance. There's no life that's perfect. And yet here we, good parents, we try to be perfect. And over time, you begin to see that no amount of micromanaging will ever prevent your children from disappointment and hurt. We live in a fallen world. Disappointment hurt, 
They are regular parts of life. And at some point, you're going to come to the conclusion that rather than drive yourself crazy trying to do the impossible, being the perfect this or that, is that your time would be best spent training your children to trust God no matter what and how they can respond to pain and disappointment in ways that honor him. See, when we focus on trying to control the circumstances in our kids' life in the name of wanting what's best for them, we put ourselves where only God should be, and that's in control. Without meaning to, we teach our kids to look to us rather than to look to God. We teach our children to depend on us to fix everything rather than trusting God to fix things and do whatever's best. We teach our children unintentionally that nothing bad is ever going to happen to them. And if that's not a setup for disappointment, I don't know what is. Nothing is more important than helping your children develop a faith that's their own. The best thing that you can do for your kids, for your grandkids, your nieces, nephews, neighbor kids, godchildren, kids that you care about, the best thing that you can do for them is to guide them to a personal relationship with Jesus. The day's going to come, and it's going to come soon, where mom and dad won't be able to fix it. The best thing that we can do is help our kids develop a faith that is their own. Think about this statement. What I give to my children or what I do for my children is not as important as what I leave in my children. What I give to my children or what I do for my children is not as important as what I leave in my children. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you gave your son for us. God, we thank you that by the power of the, your spirit that you would help us to be the right kind of grandparents, parents, aunts, and uncles. God, we pray that you would encourage this church to make a difference in the lives of kids, in the lives of students, youth. Lord, I pray that you would help the parents, the grandparents, to grow deep in their faith. God, their faith in you would be of primary importance. And that because of their faith in you, because their kids see them doing their devotions, they see them praying that somehow, some way, the kids would see it and they would begin to develop a faith that is their own. God, I pray that you would use us, that you would stir in us, Jesus, a desire to help kids follow you with all of their heart. We thank you for the love that you've given to us. God, we pray that you would help us to show that love to other people, to our kids, our neighbors, our family members. As we keep praying this morning, maybe you're here and, and you're acutely aware that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus yet. You might not believe in him. Maybe you know of him, but you don't believe in him yet. And maybe today is the day that you recognize that you're missing out on something, that you're missing out on that hole that's been in your heart, that void that you've been trying to fill. And something today is drawing you to a relationship with God. That's the Holy Spirit. He's doing it because he loves you. He's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose for you. He wanted you to be here. 
If you're here today and you're ready to, to make a personal decision to follow Jesus with all your heart, I'm going to ask you in a moment to simply slip your hand up on the count of three. Make a, a decision to follow him. And what we'll do is we'll repeat a prayer in here. Everybody will repeat it line by line. Everybody in the room, we don't want to single you out. We don't want to embarrass you. But if that's you today, ready to receive the love of Jesus, ready to begin a personal relationship with him with heads bowed and eyes closed, on the count of three, would you just simply slip your hand up and say, Jesus, today's my day. Ready? One, two, three. All right, thank you. Would you all pray this prayer with me? Say, dear Jesus, I made mistakes, and you still love me. Today, Jesus, I give my heart to you. Thank you for going to the cross, paying the penalty for my sin. Today, Jesus, by faith, I claim you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we join in with the celebration in heaven, church?